I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. For the second consecutive week of Advent, our focus is on John the Baptist. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Mark, which told how John the Baptist first appeared at the River Jordan, dressed like the prophet Elijah, and preparing the way for Jesus by baptizing those who are willing to confess their sins. And this week, we were supposed to read a passage from John 3, from even later on in John the Baptist's ministry as an adult. But I decided instead to have us go back in time a bit to look at the circumstances surrounding John the Baptist's birth in Luke chapter 1, which the lectionary never actually appoints to be read on a Sunday in its three-year cycle. I want to look at this passage in conjunction, though, with the canticle known as the Benedictus that we read today, which is the song of Zechariah that picks up right where our Luke passage left off at 1 verse 68. So beginning with our gospel passage, there we learn that Zechariah was a priest who served at the temple, but he had no children because his wife Elizabeth was barren and they were now both advanced in years. However, Zechariah learned that this circumstance would soon change when he was visited by the angel Gabriel while completing his duties in the temple one day. And Gabriel revealed to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would conceive and bear a son whom he should name John. Gabriel said Zechariah's son would go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the people for the Lord's coming. However, upon hearing this, Zechariah expressed puzzlement, if not doubt, as to how he and his wife could possibly conceive at their age. In verse 18, Zechariah says to Gabriel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So in many ways, this story parallels the story of Abram and Sarah from way back in Genesis. But as a consequence of doubting what Gabriel had said, the angel answered that Zechariah would, would be silent. He'd be unable to speak for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And all of this took place. Immediately, Zechariah was unable to speak. But days later, Elizabeth conceived. Now, last week, we said that leading up to the first century, there had been a period of more than 400 years when God had been silent where the last word from God had been Malachi's prophecy about God sending a messenger, even Elijah himself, being sent to prepare the way before the Lord's coming. And we said that Mark's description that we looked at last week, his description of John beginning his baptism ministry as an adult, marked the fulfillment of that prophecy and the end of those centuries of silence from God or any prophets. But it's really here. It's really here 30 years before with Gabriel's appearance to Zechariah that that silence is broken, right? And that the dawn begins to break. It's here that God reveals that centuries of waiting for his people are coming to an end. And yet for nine more months, Zechariah knows 
He can see it coming, but he can do nothing but wait. Well, nine months later, the child was born. In our reading, we skipped over about 32 verses where Luke goes and talks about another one of Gabriel's visits to Elizabeth's cousin Mary. But then we picked up back in verse 57 where Elizabeth gives birth to a son. However, even then, even once the baby's born, Zechariah is still unable to speak. In Jewish culture, a child wasn't given their name until eight days after their birth when they were taken to the temple, and if a boy, they were circumcised on that eighth day. So it's only then, after Zechariah at the temple there insists that the boy's name is to be John, that Zechariah's tongue is finally loosened. And man, is it loosened. After having to wait nine months to utter even a word about what Gabriel had told him, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies these words that we read today in the Benedictus. Verse 68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. But with our canticle, with that version, you'll notice the translation varies ever so slightly with, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and set them free. And that first word, is where the canticle's title, Benedictus, comes from. Benedictus just means blessed. So in this song of Zechariah, the next seven verses or so are about Jesus, who would be born about six months after this, after John. Zechariah says, He, the Lord, has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of his servant David. And then down a little bit, mentions how this was the promise sworn about to our father Abraham. But after that, after talking about Jesus, Zechariah begins to prophesy about his own son, John. He says, in what would be verse 76, he says, You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And finally, Zechariah sums up this work God is now inaugurating after centuries that Israel had been waiting Zechariah says, In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us, to shine on those who dwell in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So for nine months, Zechariah had known what was coming and what God was bringing about, but he had no choice but to wait. He'd had to wait not only to see it fulfilled, but he'd, he'd also had to suffer during that time with the challenges of being unable to speak for nine months. So in light of the waiting Zechariah was consigned to, I couldn't help this week but see at least some small parallel between his circumstances and our present circumstances in this final month of 2020. Here we've had this pandemic alter our lives in frustrating ways for going on two-thirds of a year now. But in the last month, we've gotten news of these vaccines. Now, I don't want to overstate the significance of a vaccine. I'm, first of all, not a doctor or a scientist. And I, in addition to that, knowing how effective the vaccines could be, 
I certainly can say with confidence that the coming of Jesus was a lot more life-changing than anything Pfizer will ever put out. But nonetheless, in our situation here, we, we can at least begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel, the season we've been going through, and these, so many of these limitations that, that have been necessary, we can start to see them becoming less necessary. We can see it on the horizon. And yet, even with that end in view, it's not here yet. Unfortunately, by all indications, things are even going to get worse before they get better. We're all under stay-at-home orders. More and more people are getting sick, causing incalculable strain on our healthcare system and healthcare workers. And we're now having more than 3,000 souls die in the United States every single day. So the commonality then between our circumstance now and Zechariah's then is that we have to wait. We're having to wait in circumstances we wouldn't choose. Now the scripture really makes no mention of the extent that this waiting was frustrating to Zechariah or whether it was. But perhaps the more important question anyway is, would we be frustrated if we were in his shoes? Or how frustrated are we now with the waiting we're having to go through in this present time? Similar to Zechariah then, we have great reason to hope, but for now we can only wait and wait and wait. But what I worry about is that we will allow frustration to take over, or perhaps already have that we will wish this time away. Just let it be over. How many people say, oh, 2020 just end? Or I fear that we'll wallow in discontent until this season of waiting comes to a close. You see, if 2020 has been anything, it's a test. A test for all Americans, but for Christians in particular, a test of our spiritual fitness been a test for us both individually and collectively as the church. And like any good test, it has revealed some strengths and marks of spiritual maturity, but also some weaknesses or ways that more growth, ways more growth is needed. Areas, places more growth is needed for us as a church and in our individual hearts. I would suggest that the extent that we have been overcome with frustration and discontent during 2020, that that may reveal ways that our hearts are spiritually, have been spiritually fused to some of the false idols of Western society, of the world, which otherwise, if it weren't for this pandemic, might have remained undetected or hidden from our view. Let me explain. See, for all the blessings that we enjoy from living in this country and the freedoms that we're afforded, the reality is that at the end of the day, America is still a worldly kingdom, an empire. And therefore, like any empire, like any worldly kingdom, at its core, it peddles, unfortunately, a false gospel. One that falls incredibly short of what Jesus offers to us in the gospel of his kingdom. 
And the simplest way I can break this down, explain this, the difference in the gospel of worldly kingdoms and the gospel of the kingdom of God is by talking about happiness versus joy. That's what differentiates them. The false gospel of, of the kingdom of empire offers its people, at least implicitly, the promise of happiness or the freedom to pursue happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is the well-known phrase from the Declaration of Independence. But really, all empires, even the, the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, essentially were offering this, offering the same promise of, of some level of happiness, at least to a portion of their constituents. But as Father Jeff Chapman from our province, the ACNA, has written, the problem with settling for happiness is what you're pursuing or is your standard for what human flourishing is. The problem with that is that happiness depends upon happenings. It comes from the word hap, which means happenstance. In other words, if things go our way, we're happy. If they don't, we're not. In other words, happiness is based on circumstances external to us. It depends on things that are often beyond our control. And in many cases, beyond anyone's control, including any empire or nation, like a pandemic, for example. I'm sure if anybody could, or any government could snap their fingers and just make the pandemic go away, they'd do it in a heartbeat. But it's beyond the control. And so ultimately, any promise of happiness from any source is a false one because happiness by its nature comes and goes for people based on what's going on externally in their, in their situation. But in contrast, what the kingdom of God promises us is not happiness. What it promises us is joy. And joy and happiness are not the same. In contrast to happiness, which is based on external circumstances out of our control, Chapman explains that joy is internal and founded upon something far more dependable. He explains further that the, the joy the Bible talks about all the time is rooted in the life and character of God himself, the wellspring of joy, the, the most joyful being there is. And when God imparts to us his joy, that joy is stays no matter what, or as, as long as we remain connected with him. Indeed, our Lord promised us that our life in this world would actually have trouble, right? There's no promise of happiness all the time. But what God did promise is that he intended to make his joy full in us. What you might call it joy no matter what. That joy no matter what is what allowed St. Paul to write as he did in the, the passage we heard from today, from Philippians 4. He wrote that while being unjustly imprisoned in jail. And yet in verse 11, he wrote, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I'm in. It's what allows him earlier in the passage to exhort those receiving this letter to, quote, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What makes it possible for us to do that too, to rejoice and have joy in all circumstances is when our heart grasps the reality of God's presence with us 
In faith, we believe that he's with us, whether we can feel it or not. When we grasp the unconditional nature of his love for us, and when our heart grasps the knowledge that we can fulfill our human purpose of being used by God for his glory, no matter what situation, circumstance we find ourselves in. So this is why I'm saying that the extent that we find ourselves overcome with frustration and discontent during this trying time likely reveals the extent that our hearts have at least in part bought into the worldly, the world's or worldly empire's false gospel of happiness, of pursuing happiness above all. One silver lining of something like pandemics is they expose some idolatry of our hearts that, as I said earlier, might otherwise be hidden. Now you may say, well, well why is that silver lining? To have idolatry exposed, sin exposed. Well, the point of such exposure isn't to make us feel bad. You'll remember from last week that when we feel bad, uh, when we feel condemnation, I should say, in regard to our sin being exposed, that's a fear-based approach to repentance. But God intends for us to practice joy-based repentance, where we are actually, as hard as it is to say, in some ways eager for sin to be uncovered. It's, we see it as a good thing because it's a necessary part of our growth and glorifying God even more in our lives. You can't deal with something with God if it's not first uncovered, exposed, acknowledged. And we don't have to fear condemnation because we're forgiven. And that context of God's grace provides us with the safety that we need in order to allow God to change our hearts and overcome such idolatry of the heart. So one symptom of idolatry is that our, that our current circumstances may expose is that if we're, we're struggling to be okay without some of the accoutrements or freedoms that we've grown accustomed to living with in a 21st century first world country, if, if, if living without some of that stuff is really making it hard for us to, to be okay, to deal, well, that's a sign that we've become spiritually fused to such things as a false source of life instead of receiving that from Christ. Now, this isn't to say we can't be appropriately sad or even grieved to be missing out on this or that during this season. Such feelings are completely valid and are not sin. But there's a difference between, maybe a helpful distinction is the distinction between feelings and mood. When the circumstances of this pandemic reach the point of being mood-altering for us, what this may reveal is a deficiency, something missing from us of the eternal quality of life that God's seeking to bring our way. So the first thing this, this pandemic may reveal is idolatry of the heart, but this test we're going through will also mercilessly expose bad theology when we believe things that are not quite correct and consistent with God's heart. A pandemic like this will expose some of that and all the bad fruit it can bear. It's been pretty grievous, really, how for many Christians, the, the biggest concern lately has become whether our rights are being violated. That for many Christians, our religious freedom 
has become more consuming than any concerns about putting others at risk or the thousands of people who are now dying from this pandemic on a daily basis. Now, don't get me wrong. There may be issues of religious freedom that the church should question and perhaps even legally pursue. But no matter what may be accomplished legally on that front, our consideration of the health and welfare of others must always eclipse our desire to be able to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. As our bishop has said time and again, asserting our First Amendment rights must never come at the expense of Jesus' command to love our neighbor. So why is it that so many find it easy to, to hashtag never forget the 2,900 who died on 9-11 or the 2,400 who died at Pearl Harbor around, around this time of the year? But then they can in the next breath so easily minimize an even greater number of souls dying every single day right now. Well, this may just be a sign that there's at least a part of us that is traded in receiving Christ's joy for the false gospel and more instant gratification of pursuing happiness, our own happiness above all. And if this is the case, which I know it has been at least to some degree for me, I've discovered. Well, then thanks be to God, the Lord has gifted us with the season of Advent. Because Advent reminds us of the truth that while we may not like waiting in discomfort, like Zechariah had to for months and like Israel did for so many centuries, sitting in the dark, metaphorically, the hard truth is that waiting is required in order to receive the joy of the kingdom. We have to be willing, we have to learn, get comfortable with waiting. The kingdom life requires that we develop the capacity to faithfully wait in order to receive it. So God wants to help us with that. That's part of the gift of a season like Advent, when God wants to help us learn to wait. And yet God teaching us to wait isn't about putting us in a corner while we learn our lesson. No, faithful waiting isn't passive either. Rather, we, we, we faithfully wait by turning away from hoping in our idols whenever that's exposed to us and turning toward the Lord. Waiting's not about working really hard either. It's about learning to abide in the vine, learning how to rest in Jesus, which is, can be so hard. So as we learn to turn away from the false idols of this world, as God helps us to learn to wait for the king, what the kingdom offers instead, what will the fruit of such waiting be? Before I close, I want to give a few examples. I, I think that some of the fruit will mean that we don't wish life away when we're in a difficult circumstance. Don't pine for it to just be changed and better. That we don't need to 
throw ourselves into addiction or fantasy just to survive it, but are able to be present in reality. I think another fruit is of learning to wait in the Lord, receive his joy, is it will enhance our ability to have empathy for those who are being, in this case, most severely affected by this pandemic. The medical professionals fighting to keep so many alive whose own suicide rates are skyrocketing among medical professionals right now. If the discomfort of me having or choosing to wear a mask might make their load just a little bit lighter. Well, joy in the Lord can help me do that joyfully, choose to do that joyfully. Or if wearing a mask, for example, may quite literally keep somebody alive that I would otherwise endanger. Well, learning to trade trade in the pursuit of happiness for receiving joy and and learning to faithfully wait, it'll increase our capacity to do that and to have empathy toward what will probably today or tomorrow reach 300,000 Americans who've succumbed to this disease already and the countless more who are fighting for their lives. And that that can become a number, that can be a number that's hard to even grasp. But the truth is, if my concern is just the being happy, then I don't want to grasp it. Trying to grasp that number is going to make me sad. I'm going to want to pretend it's not happening. But Christ's joy has room for grief, and it's not afraid of holding it. If we trade in the pursuit of happiness for receiving God's joy, Maybe the value of our Christmas holiday can be freed from dependence on whom we get to spend it with or not. Maybe God can help us find contentment in that situation and joy in the reason for the season, as we're always talking about, despite some traditions we may miss out on for a year. But of course, the greatest fruit of all from learning to faithfully wait Of course, it's the Lord himself. It's God with us, Emmanuel, who is always faithful to come, provided we are willing to wait. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.